Hagen, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Hey everyone, Happy New Year. This is now part five of our Foreknowledge and Free Will series. We've considered open theism and Arminianism, and now we are going to begin thinking about Calvinism. This way of approaching God's foreknowledge argues for both exhaustive foreknowledge and meticulous providence. Thus, no one comes to Christ apart from God's predestination, since our natures are so corrupted that we do not have the ability to choose God. And I'm happy today to have Dr. Sean Cole as my guest. He is the lead pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. He is the host of a podcast called Understanding Christianity, and he teaches Old Testament and New Testament theology, as well as biblical interpretation as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. He has a Doctor of Ministry degree in expository preaching from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's the author of the recent Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel, which came out last April. In this episode, I asked Dr. Cole to share about his background and lay out a positive case for his view of foreknowledge and free will. See what you think. Here now is episode 307, Foreknowledge and Free Will, Part 5, Sean Cole Introducing Calvinism. Well, thank you so much, Sean Cole, for coming on to Restitutio today. I appreciate you taking the time out. Well, I thank you for inviting me. It's exciting to be here and to learn more about what your ministry is. Well, let's start with the whole subject of Calvinism. We've, we've heard from a number of other perspectives, and I just want to get started by asking about your background and did you grow up in a Reformed church, or how did you come across this uh, system of belief? Right. No, I actually—I'm a son of a pastor, and I grew up in a tra- what you would call a traditional Southern Baptist family and church culture. And basically, the, the themes that I grew up with were basically, you know, eternal security. You could not lose your salvation. But we didn't talk a lot about election or predestination. I didn't even know any of the Reformed theology until— I met some Presbyterians in college and um, got really angry with what they were saying about God and about my free choice and about predestination. And my friend and I in college actually got so upset that we wrote a white paper uh, refuting this new theology we'd heard of called Calvinism. And so I was rabidly anti-Calvinistic in my college days and in my 20s. And it wasn't until I started seminary in the late 90s that I actually started learning the original languages, started studying systematic theology. Uh, One of my professors was Dr. James White. He was my philosophy of religion, my apologetics professor. And Uh uh, he gave us a copy of his book, The Potter's Freedom. And I read it and was really, you know, tore it apart and disagreed with every bit of it. And then I went back and started rereading it and so there were some watershed moments going through the Gospel of John exegetically, um, reading some primary sources in uh, Reformed theology. And it was probably around the year 2000 that I basically um, came to embrace all five points of Calvinism and to basically embrace Reformed theology. And w- were you still in school at that time? Yeah, I was. I was getting my MDiv. Oh, okay. Very good. Uh, well, in this series, we're we're exploring God's knowledge and our human free will. We've heard a couple of these other options that we just mentioned. Uh, I was just hoping that we could start by just having you lay out a positive case for us 
about what you believe the Bible to be teaching on this subject. Like, what is God's knowledge, and do we have free choice? What, what, how do you work it all out? Take whatever time you need to, to lay out sure. that case. Sure. Well, the theological term that we as Reformed theologians use is compatibilism. Um, that's, you know, I'm not, I'm, you probably have used that term before. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about the way we understand compatibilism. It's often misdefined. Um, let me define it uh, for, for your audience. It's basically the idea that God's absolute and meticulous sovereignty over all things is compatible with human freedom. In other words, the Bible affirms two simultaneous truths. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. Number two, humans are responsible and accountable creatures who act freely in accordance with their nature. Um, one of the issues that people tend to mischaracterize compatibilism is they say, how does God's sovereignty relate to or is compatible with libertarian free will? That is not the Reformed view of compatibilism, because as Reformed theologians, we actually reject libertarian free will. So we're not asking the question, how does God's sovereignty, how is that compatible with libertarian free will? Uh, we don't work in those categories. Our categories are, how does God's sovereignty, how is that compatible with creaturely freedom or a freedom that acts in accordance with its nature? How do those two things coexist? And we basically would say that the Bible teaches both. That the Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign, that humans do make choices, but they are not libertarian free choices. They're choices made based upon the nature of the human will. Can you uh, just explain that a little bit? What's the difference between regular human free will and libertarian human free will? Sure. Libertarian free will basically, I would say, has three main tenets. Um, and and this, this is probably debatable, but this is the way I understand it. Premise number one in libertarian free will, the way I understand it, is that, is that man or humans, man is the origin and cause of his own actions. That's number one. Number two, uh, man in most cases has the ability to choose between two or more options. Um, way, there, there's, there's what would be called contra-causal free choice. You could choose between A and not A. Man, number three, man's choice was not determined. There's nothing either internal or external to the human will that causally determines them to make the choice that they make. So that's the way I would understand libertarian free will. The questions that I would pose related to the way I understand creaturely freedom or the way the Bible defines the human will is to maybe ask some questions or to, to pose some, some questions that, that are related to the unregenerate person. Um, because I think we need, to, we need to talk about a person who is unregenerate who's not yet a Christian, because I think there's a difference between a person who is unregenerate and a person who's regenerate in regards to, to the will. Okay. And so the question that I would ask would be, number one, does a sinner have a choice over his or her fundamental nature? Um, in other words, are our choices determined by a power, our power of contrary choice and nothing else? Or are our choices determined by our nature? As a Calvinist, I would argue that our choices are determined by our nature, and that nature is a fallen nature. So there is 
some type of influence over the choices that we make that come from the nature that we've received as fallen in Adam. Okay. Another question, does a sinner have a choice over his or her desires? In other words, do our desires merely influence our choices, but we can choose to act against those desires? Or do our desires ultimately cause the choices we make and we cannot choose otherwise? I would say the fallen sinner in Adam, the person who's unregenerate, will choose based upon his desires, his or her desires. So creaturely freedom means that you choose based upon your nature and you choose based upon your desires. Another question you would have to ask is, does a sinner have a choice over his or her state of affairs or life circumstances? In other words, do we control where we were born, which family we were born into, which period of history we were born into, how much exposure we had to the gospel? We have no control over that. We're born into the situation we're born into, and that is an exterior or an external force or circumstance that's going to influence the way that you make decisions. Um, So I would say that a fallen sinner in Adam who's unregenerate, because of the fall and because they're born with a sin nature, their choices are determined by their fallen nature, their fallen desires, and their life circumstances haven't have an influence there. And so the fundamental issue is, is that a compatibilist like myself would see that a human sinner's fundamental nature is that of being dead in sin mm-hmm. and morally and spiritually unable to come to Christ or do anything positive for God. And as, as such, because of that, our desires are fallen and we choose based upon our nature and our desires. And so our actual choices are not free in the libertarian sense, that you could choose otherwise, that you have autonomous free will, or that you're the primary chooser. Your choices are actually determined by your nature and your desires, which come as a result of the fall. Okay. If I could use an analogy just to see if I'm catching your, your meaning here correctly. Well, right now I've got a, a problem with my foot. Um, I had a bone spur, and I had surgery on it, and that's, I think we can agree, a result of the, the fallen condition of my <laughs> frail human body. human body, right? Sure. Uh, so that's that's kind of like this, this burden that I have right now, at least until it heals, uh, where I'm not able to run, I'm not able to play basketball or other sports because just of this this fallenness that I carry within me in my foot. And uh, so I can make choices about, you know, if I want to exercise, I could swim or I could ride a bike, but I don't have the full range of choices that I would have had otherwise if I didn't have this issue going on. Is that a fair analogy for what you're saying here, or am I just Um, totally missing it? No, it's a fair analogy in the world of of physical physical choices. because you are bound by your condition. Um, you, can, you can have a desire to play basketball, and you may really want to, but you physically can't because of your bone spur. What I'm saying is in the moral and spiritual aspect of choices, when it comes to morally and spiritually making choices positively to come to Christ, 
or to believe in Jesus, we do not have the capacity to do that in our fallen state. Not that we uh, we don't want to. So there's two things we lack. We don't lack the um, desire to do it, and we don't lack the and then we lack the ability. We don't want to do it unless God does something to regenerate us, to overcome that deadness, to overcome that inability, granting us both the desire to come to Christ and the power to come to Christ. Okay, so uh, just to switch scenarios, I went to Red Robin today for lunch, and do you have those out where you are? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. so they have like a hundred different burgers to choose from, right. and uh, so like a fallen person and a regenerated person could uh, both have a, f- a free range of options there. You know, they're both free in the same sense with respect to th- that kind of a decision. Sure. sure. But with respect to something about salvation or or belief in the gospel, the uh, that's where the limitation comes in. Yeah, I, I would say that. I would say you go to Red Robin and you look at the menu. Why did you choose the, what's it called? The Royal Red Robin burger with the yeah, that's egg. Why, why did you choose that one over the one the, with the fried egg? Yeah. The fried <laughs> egg versus the whiskey river chicken. That's what right. my mom gets. So wh- why did you choose? Well, you chose that based upon your nature and your desires, right? You wanted that. Now that's, a, that's just a regular choice. It's not a moral or a spiritual choice. Right. It's just a choice that's operating in life. Do I want to wear blue socks today? Do I want to wear black socks? Well, I, I choose. But when it comes to responding to or repenting or believing or coming to Christ, uh, our view is that the Bible is very clear that the will is in bondage, that the, the, the nature is fallen, and that there is not just total depravity where we're stained with sin, we're corrupted with sin, that we are fallen, but that... We actually take it one step further as Calvinists and say, actually, we're unable to come. We are totally dead in our sins. We are, the mind is hostile to God. We cannot submit. We there, There's an inability spiritually and morally to make a positive decision for Christ unless God overcomes that deadness, that depravity, that inability through sovereign regeneration. Okay. Uh, what else would you like to say about this uh, just positive case here? Well, I guess one of the things I'd like to do is I would like to, um, if you don't mind, talk about some verses that teach that God has a sovereign decree. Yeah, sure. I won't go over all of these in detail, but um, I I would like to share some verses where God has a sovereign decree, and I'd also like to share some verses where we see um, some narrative passages or some old, especially Old Testament passages that kind of teach compatibilism, where God has a sovereign decree— and that sovereign decree is worked out in time through the choices of human agents that are doing what they want to do, but they're actually carrying out what God had sovereignly determined for them to do. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Okay. So um, Isaiah fourteen twenty seven, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Obviously, these are rhetorical questions that Isaiah asks, and the, the assumed answer is nobody. If God has purposed something, if God has decreed something, uh, no one can frustrate that, no one can annul it, no one can turn it back, no one can stop what God has purposed to do. So God has a sovereign, meticulous decree, a purpose that he will accomplish that cannot be frustrated by any human um, will or um, any type of human power. 
And then Isaiah 45, 5 through 7, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Uh, This is a difficult passage of Scripture because— you have God here saying, I create calamity, Mm. which at first glance, most people reading that would be like, well, that's, I have to stop and think about that. God creates calamity. Well, what's calamity? Well, the Hebrew word is raw, which can have a range of meanings depending on context in in, in the Hebrew language. It can mean moral evil. Um, It can mean misfortunes. It can even mean natural disasters. Um, so the question you have to ask is, well, does God actually create moral evil? And this is where we as Calvinists would say that there's a distinction between the direct cause of something and an indirect cause or a secondary cause. And, and I can get into that in just a moment, but all of the Reformed confessions make that distinction that all things come about according to God's sovereign decree, but that doesn't take away the issue of secondary causes. And, and, and we, can, we can talk about that now or we can talk about that later, but that's an important tenet in Reformed theology when we talk about compatibilism is primary and secondary causation, because often the accusation against the Reformed view is that your view makes God the author of evil, um, or your view makes God to be the author of evil, or to be directly responsible for all the evil that comes about. And the key word there is directly. And that's why all the Reformed confessions, and even Calvin himself and the Institutes, would talk about secondary causation. We can talk about that. Well, yeah, let's come point. Let's come back to that. Uh, sure. What, what you're saying from these Isaiah texts is that God is sovereign, or another way to say that, God is in charge. And uh, the, if I understand you correctly on Isaiah 45, 7, you're saying that that sovereignty extends to not only well-being and and good things happening, but even calamity and bad things happening. And that, I don't know if I heard R.C. Sproul say this or somebody else, but like there's not a a molecule in the universe that's not where God wants it to be. Is that... Yeah, yeah, that's R.C. Sproul. There's not a maverick molecule roaming around. A maverick molecule. Doing doing its own thing out there. Right, so that's where this word meticulous that you said before comes in, meticulous sovereignty yes, over Yes, yes, meticulous, yeah, what I would say, my view, and, and, and again, you're talking to one one Calvinist here, so there could be a difference of opinion among, among us, but I use the word meticulous providence or meticulous sovereignty, um, and, I, and I understand the view of, of the other Arminians and maybe the traditional provisionist Southern Baptists and others that would say God is sovereign in that he is— powerful over, but he doesn't meticulously rule or he doesn't meticulously govern. He doesn't interact. Um, the word we would use is providentially. We see a difference between sovereignty and providence. Um, God has a sovereign decree that he made or ordained before the foundation of the world, but that sovereign decree is actually worked out in time and space through his providence. And that providence can either be God's direct involvement, or it could be through secondary causes. But God is governing meticulously everything that happens, so that what ends up actually happening in time and space is what God ordained to happen before the foundation of the world. Okay. 
And so an example of that would be Isaiah, another Isaiah passage, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Uh, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. Now, when God mentions the former things of old, I don't think he's just mentioning Israel's history all the way back to the Red Sea or whatever. I think he's talking about the former things of old, discussing an an eternal decree, going all the way back to eternity. Uh, And so I think what Isaiah is saying is, who alone can do all these things from eternity past and into the future but the creator of all things, the one true God. And this passage has three participles or three um, statements that all deal with God speaking. God says, I'm going to declare the end from the beginning. God's going to say, my counsel will stand. And God's going to call a bird of prey from the east. And so in this first issue, when God's declaring the end from the beginning, God's predicting the future. Um, And so you have to ask the question, well, how can an omniscient God predict the future? Does he learn that knowledge? Does he foresee contingencies and then react to those? Or does he declare it because the future is already decreed by him as well? And so this comes to, and this may be going into the weeds a little bit, but often in the Bible there's what we call speech act. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar or your, your listeners are familiar with the speech act idea that comes, especially in the Old Testament, that when what God says or declares actually comes to pass. So when God says something, it's not just a word out there that just kind of goes nowhere. When God says something, it's actually going to happen. It's always, it's actually going, there's going to be an action behind it. And that action is always going to come to pass. Um, So if God declares that something's going to happen, in this case, the end and the beginning, what God declares is going to happen the way he purposed it. So you're saying it's as good as done. It's as good as done. If God declares it, it's not just God's predicting it. It's not just God's foreseeing it. It's not just God is learning it. It's God is actually declaring it in the sense that he ordained it. Just like in creation, when God said, let there be light, he wasn't predicting that there was going to be light. He said it and it actually accomplished what he said. Uh It's kind of back to that passage where it says, you know, God's word does not return void. Mm -hmm. Whenever God speaks, there's always an action behind it. And that action is always going to be accomplished is the way we would understand it. Okay. And he says, I'm going to accomplish my will. Um, I've spoken. I'll bring it to pass. I've purposed it. I'll do it. You have to ask, well, why does does God say that four times? Don't, Don't we get the point by now? What he's trying to get across is that surely and most assuredly, God is going to emphatically and infallibly bring about these things based upon his unalterable decree. Those are the the passages that talk about God having a sovereign decree, but there's some interesting passages that talk about God ordaining something to happen and then a person doing that freely, and then being held accountable for doing something that would probably be in violation of what God's revealed will is. 
Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Does that make sense? Okay. So let me give you an example. Like in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 9, it says, If the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. Now, Now think about that. If a prophet is deceived by God and says God's the one that deceived him, and he speaks that word that God deceived him with, God's going to stretch out his hand and destroy him for doing what God ordained for him to do. Yeah, you know, that actually reminds me of the incident with Micaiah and, uh, was that, King Ahab, where, uh-huh. uh, yeah, God was having his heavenly throne room conference session or whatever, <laughs> and uh, one spirit came forward and said, oh, I'm going to go be a, a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, and, right. you know, yet he still did hold the, the nation and the king accountable for listening to the the deception that God authorized to be there. Right. right. Uh, is that a similar kind of case to what you're That'd saying be, here? Yeah, and that would be more of a secondary where God, um, you said God authorized it. This is actually a, we see this as a primary direct action where it says, I have deceived that prophet. Mm-hmm. Now, what the text doesn't tell us is exactly how God deceived that prophet. Right. God directly put the thought in his mind. But what it says is that God ordained a false prophecy as a form of judgment on the false prophets. And at the time that that prophet was prophesying, did they know they were being deceived by God to prophesy falsely? No. The text doesn't tell us. Well, it wouldn't well, be a deception if they knew it. Or what we would say is they were simply acting out of their nature and inclinations at that time to do what they wanted to do or to respond the way they wanted to respond to that deception Yet that deception was sovereignly being determined by God, and God held the person accountable for doing what God had put in him to do. Okay. So there's some scriptures like that that you have to deal with and say, wow, God is ordaining something that would seem to go against his prescriptive revealed will. Um, God obviously doesn't want there to be false prophecies. God doesn't like lying. One of the Ten Commandments is you shouldn't bear false witness, but yet the Lord himself is going to deceive a prophet. That prophet's going to speak the deceived word, and then God's going to turn around and judge that prophet for doing what God ordained him to do that was actually sinful. Right. So uh, my question to you then on that interpretation, how is that prophet morally culpable if— he or she didn't even have a choice. Well, it depends on how you define culpable. Um, what we would say in our view is that all sinners are responsible for their sin. Even if that sin is directly coming from God to induce them to sin or they're acting out of their nature, they're still held accountable for their sin. And that's one of the big issues on our view that is often pushed back is you know, you reform people who believe in compatibilism, you've basically taken away human culpability because um, how can God hold a sinner accountable for doing what he determined that they would do? Yeah. And, and I think actually Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 9, um, which I, I'd have to pull up in front of me, but that's one of his second objections there is why does God still find fault? You know, who can resist his will? And that's basically the answer to that question is, if, if you can't resist God's sovereign will, then why is God finding fault with you for doing what he determined for you to do? And Paul's answer is, who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Paul doesn't even doesn't really give us an answer to that. He just says, you shouldn't really 
even even entertain that. But that's the that's the rhetorical question that the the interlocutor there in um, Romans nine is the diatribe he's having with Paul on that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, do you have an answer, or are you just saying we're not allowed to ask the question? Um, my answer would be that we are responsible for the actions that we do. Um, every human being is going to be judged by the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And so we know there's going to be a judgment based upon what we did. Now, the question becomes, okay, what happens if you're doing what God determined for you to do and you were just doing it? Yeah. Are you still accountable for it? And the question is, yeah, you're still accountable for it because you did it. Now, obviously, did you do it f- did you do it with autonomous freedom or you could have chosen to do otherwise? No, you did it based upon what you wanted to do at the time, which was part of your fallen nature and part of your desire and part of God's decree. Um, I mean, we see that in Judas. You know, God had God punished Judas for doing what God had determined Judas to do. I don't know, punished him per se, but you know, Judas is an example of someone who you say held him responsible. Yeah, held him responsible for betraying Christ, even though it was determined that he would de- betray Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, the, probably the biggest one is Genesis fifty twenty. Uh, I'm not sure if your other guests have have addressed the whole issue with Joseph's brothers and how he they come to him at the end of Genesis after Jacob has died and they're afraid that Joseph's going to retaliate against them for the evil that they perpetrated on him way back when he was younger when they threw him in this in the well and sold him into slavery and left him for dead and in Genesis 50:20 Joseph says as for you he's talking to the brothers you meant evil against me but God meant it the evil for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, here's where our view takes those Hebrew words and understands them the way that I think they're they're meant to be understood biblically. Um, God doesn't simply respond to the evil actions of the brothers after the fact and then somehow work them out for good. But that word meant you— brothers meant evil. God meant it. So the same Hebrew word there, the the brothers had an evil intention and God had an intention in that evil act. It's the same word. Um, So the question is, okay, what does that word meant mean? You meant, this is the way the ESV translates it. You meant evil against me. God meant it. Um, In the Hebrew language, it literally means to weave. But in this case, it can mean to devise, to determine to plan, to strategize. It was often used when an army was going out to war. They would put together a strategy or a battle plan before they went out into combat. So you can think of it this way. The brothers determined, planned, devised evil against Joseph and selling him into slavery. They were acting freely in doing this evil. God didn't hold a gun to their head. There was no outside force that, that, got, that caused them to do that. They were jealous they were hateful. They were acting out of their fallen nature to do what they wanted to do, which was to do evil. At the same time, God didn't just use their evil after the fact to bring about good. Yet that same Hebrew word there meant God had a divine purpose and intention and strategy in it as well. So you could say it this way. The brothers acted freely to do what they wanted to do. 
God acted freely to do what he had planned to do. God didn't directly hold a gun to the head of the brothers, making them do what they wanted to do. They did what they wanted to do. They will be held accountable for what they did. But at the end of the day, they did exactly what God wanted them to do. Does that make sense? Well, I'm I'm trying to wrap my mind around it, Sean. It's it's not easy. <laughs> um, it seems like this verse here, Genesis fifty twenty, that you're pointing out is saying that their intention was to do something bad to Joseph, but God's intention for Joseph was for good. Are you saying that the same act that they did, God had a different intention than they had, but they didn't have a choice to do other than what God had ordained? Correct. Okay. Because because as for you, you meant evil against me. That's the brothers. But God meant it. Okay, what did God God meant it? The selling of him into slavery, right? God God meant God meant it. God devised it. God God planned it. It was God's sovereign plan for the brothers to put Jacob into that well and to sell him into slavery and to do that evil and betray their brother. It was God's sovereign plan. The brothers fulfilled God's sovereign plan freely doing what they wanted to do so that at the end of the day, they were doing what they wanted to do, but at the same time, they were doing what God wanted them to do. I see. So they could, they could not have done otherwise because it was God's sovereign intention from the beginning for them to do that. Okay. Does, does that make? And if you need me to slow down, just yeah, let me, I mean, it's let just me know. Uh, it's just a lot to take in because I mean you have you have like the open theist on one side, right, who says that if God foreknows meticulously, exhaustively everything that's going to happen, right. then people don't really have a free a, a free choice. You know, they're they're limited to doing what it is God has already seen that they will do. And um, then the Ar- the Arminian comes along and says, "Oh well, you know, it's a mystery. We don't really know how, but somehow these things are compatible. Um, that God already knows, and yet you still have you, you still have libertarian free will. You can still choose otherwise." And then the the Calvinist perspective is saying, "Well, you, you, see, the thing that I think confuses me is that you're using this term compatibilism." And I'm almost thinking like it's, it means the opposite of what the word normally means, like incompatibilism, where we don't have libertarian free will. I mean, you've already stated that. Right. So right. Um, libertarian free will is incompatible with right. foreknowledge, sovereignty, God, theology. Right. That would be one. That would be a negative way to put it. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm not trying <laughs> well, to be I mean, difficult. Be, no, I'm not saying that, that would be the negative assertion. It would right. be, you would say... Libertarian free will is incompatible with God's sovereign decree. Okay, that would be. See, that's what the that's way where we my would... head is like, kind of lining right. things up, and and you're using the term compatibilism right. for what I'm perceiving as an incompatibilism. Right. Uh, but right. actually, in and this that... text, what you what you are fighting for is a compatibilism that them being held morally responsible for this act of selling Joseph is compatible with God ordaining them to do it. Yes. And the motivations yes. and, are totally at cross purposes as well. Right. And that's what compatibilism is. Remember, compatibilism is not God's sovereignty is compatible with libertarian free will. Because if, if you say God's sovereignty is compatible with libertarian free will, then that means by definition they could have done otherwise in libertarian free will. Okay, right. So 
compatibilism is God's sovereignty is compatible with human freedom or human choices, not libertarian free choices, but choices nonetheless that are made based upon a person's fallen nature. Okay, very good. Where else would you like to go? Well, I want to go back to your open theist question okay. because it's interesting how um, open theist and Calvinist probably start at the same starting point because, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but an open theist would assert that if God does know the future and has exhaustive foreknowledge of all things and looks down the corridors of time and sees what somebody's going to do, then that person cannot do otherwise than what God sees. Right. Therefore, God must either limit his knowledge of what he sees or God does not know the future actions of those creatures. Would that be a fair assessment of, of open theism? That's a dichotomy. Uh, there are other possibilities, such as the future doesn't even exist yet. So, okay. you know, it's not really that he's limiting himself. It's just that it doesn't exist. So right. uh, things that don't exist aren't aren't accessible. I mean, you can right. think about them, conceptualize, but until something exists, it doesn't exist. But yeah, uh, I'll, I'll grant that. Go ahead. So, so a Calvinist would say, and an open theist would both say, if we take it logically to its conclusion, if God has exhaustive foreknowledge of all things, and God is omniscient, then what either God sees or what God either foreordains must come to pass, because then if it doesn't, God must either not have full knowledge, or God was wrong, or God sees something in the future that could have happened otherwise, and that and we can't have that, because taken to its not so. The Arminian comes in and says, now, wait a minute, we're not open theists and we're not Calvinists. We believe God we ha God has foreknowledge, but we don't believe that necess necessitates God making a sovereign decree of what will happen and taking away that libertarian free will of humans. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's, that's where we're at as far as the three options. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, if you're trying to keep a a steady stream between the three podcasts you've had, it may be good just to kind of realize that there are similarities, but they diverge differently in how um, that foreknowledge interacts or how, how God's foreknowledge works. Yeah, yeah, very good. Are there any other texts you'd like to look at? Um, just on the, let me just double check. On the basic layout, uh, or can I move on to one of these other? Yeah, we could, yeah, yeah, you can move on. Go ahead. Let's move on to the issue of fairness. We've already been talking about this a little bit, but th this comes up a lot with discussions of sovereignty and foreknowledge. Sure. It's a whole issue sure. of theodicy, and, you know, there's so much uh, suffering in the world, and, you know, if God is, has decreed everything that's going to happen either in a primary or in a secondary way, doesn't that make him responsible for all the kinds of you know, seemingly uh, senseless or gratuitous suffering that we see in our world. Well, that's one way we, we can look at it, and that's where we're going to have to get back to the whole issue of direct and indirect causation. Um, yeah, let's get into so, that. So let me give you an example, and this, this may be um, an interesting one. So let's talk about Job. So if, if you want to go to any book in the Bible where there's suffering and there's pain and there's sorrow, you know, Job's at the top of the list because that's really what the entire book's about. So at the beginning of the book of Job, God permits 
Satan to take everything away from Job except for his life. Mm-hmm. And his wife. Okay. And his wife, which <laughs> he probably wished that would happen. <laughs> um, so let me just read Job 1, 9 through 12. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so. Who here is ordaining the suffering of Job? Is it God or Satan ordaining it or allowing it or permitting it, whatever word you want to use? Uh, who, who ultimately has control of the, of the, of the, over whether Job will suffer or not? Is it God or Satan? It would be God. Okay, so God permits or allows or ordains Satan to actually— come against Job except for not to take his life. Right. Okay. Now, you go on and read the rest of that passage, and you find out that the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans were the ones that came and raided and killed Job's servants and did all this attacking and pillaging. Uh So you have to ask the question, okay, anywhere in that text, did God directly cause the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans to come do what they did to attack and pillage. It doesn't say so. No. Does it say that Satan directly forced them to do it? No. I think that's the impression you get is that there's a causal link between Satan and these different okay. acts, but it, does, sure. it certainly isn't explicit. It's not explicit, um, but we have to go back to what God allowed. God gave Satan permission to harm Job except for his life. And so although there's not direct teaching there, there's some inferences to say that behind the secondary causes of evil, whether it was Satan or whether it was Satan influencing the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, if you trace it all the way back, who was ultimately the ordainer or the permitter of the evil? It was God. Right. But God didn't directly come against Job and cause the evil. He allowed it, he permitted it, he ordained it. Um, and so Job says in Job one twenty one, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's interesting from Job's perspective, who does he blame? Does, does, he doesn't even know Satan's the one that's doing it. He doesn't blame the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans. Um, He doesn't blame the secondary causes that actually were the ones that did it to him. He goes directly to God. Mm -hmm. Now, so he says God's the one that's behind all this. Well, was God directly behind it, or did God ordain it to happen, and it was carried out in time by Satan's influence of the Chaldeans? Now— Well, I want to ask you a question. You you, you are using this triplet of words. You say— permit, allow, ordain. And two of those are easy synonyms for me, the permit and allow, but ordain (laughs) to me sounds like much more active. And I left that open because um, I actually believe as a Calvinist that it's ordain. Um, The Arminians and the non-Calvinists would probably use the word permit. 
And so I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of be fair to all to the to the other viewpoint on this passage of scripture to show even if you believe that God quote unquote permitted Satan to do this uh-huh. or allowed Satan to do this, you still have to go back to the fact that God's still the one that's in charge of this happening. In other words, Job's suffering would not happen unless God said no to Satan or God said yes to Satan. Right, right. I got you. That makes so sense. Does, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I believe God ordained it, but I'm trying to be fair to those that may not be Calvinist to at least acknowledge that God at least permitted it. And if God permitted it, then he could have not have permitted it, and he's still the primary one behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, sorry for that confusion. You get to the end of Job after everything happens to him, and then in Job 42.11, Then came to all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him something and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Now, this is the narrator. Job's not speaking. This is the, the writer of the, of the book is making a theological statement that all this stuff that happened to him, who does he attribute it to? The evil that the Lord had to brought God, yeah. What was that? What was that verse? I just saw I could find uh, Job, Yeah, Job 42.11. Okay. Thanks. So at, so at the end of Job, does the narrator, and whether that's Job himself that wrote it or whoever, we're really not exactly sure the author of Job. The, the question, though, is who's blamed? Is it Satan? No. Is it the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, or is it the strong wind that came? The evil that came upon Job was attributed to the Lord brought upon him. Now, here's the question. Did God directly through his hand alone and was the one that inflicted Job with all this calamity? No. Or did God, and I'll use the three words again, did God either permit it, allow it, or ordain it, however you want to take that, Satan was the secondary cause that brought about the evil, and then the Sabines and the Chaldeans were the actual, if you want to say third cause, were the actual human instruments that actually brought about the evil. But at the end of the book, the theological statement is the Lord was the one that brought all this evil upon him. And so to answer the theodicy question, the question here is, regardless of how you view evil coming upon somebody, there's no good answer for any of the views unless God either is the primary cause behind it all, either directly or indirectly, whether permitting, ordaining, or allowing. If I'm going to concede to God admits, allows it or permits it, then you have to ask the question, well, why does God allow it or permit it? He must have a reason for it, and he must be doing it sovereignly. The devil can't go against God and say, no, I'm going to go against your wishes. So even then, you still have God sovereignly control making something happen or causing or allowing something to happen that's evil that he could have not allowed to happen or could have stopped, but it happens anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in that way, everyone has to answer the question, well, why do bad things happen in our world? But the sort of extra burden that the affirmer of meticulous uh, foreordained sovereignty has to has to bear is that there is a will ahead of time 
right. a sort of, I don't know what you would call it, a direct will, even if the he sov- doesn't carry it out right. directly. We would say there's, right, there's a sovereign decree yeah. that, this, there's, let's just say it this way, there's a sovereign decree that God made that Job would suffer. Right, right. And so even if you say God allowed it, he's still sovereignly allowing it and not stopping it, which doesn't help your which doesn't help the question of why is there evil. It still has to ultimately go back to God. Uh-huh. Because the question is, okay, if God doesn't stop the evil and he allows it or permits it, then either he's not powerful enough, because if he was powerful, he would stop it, or he must not be loving enough. If he was loving, he would stop it. So therefore, because God doesn't stop it, because God allows it, because God permits it, he's either, the argument goes, he's either not powerful or he's not loving. And scripture would refute both of those, that God is powerful right. and God is loving. Right. So how would you answer it? Answer what? The Just the question of why Why does God foreordain evil to happen in our world? I mean, what, what is, I would say, what is I the would point say, of that? <laughs> yeah, I would say that that's one of the biggest questions in the Bible as to, it's a why question that I don't know if we have the full answer to. And so let's talk pastorally here for a moment. Um, oftentimes when somebody's going through periods of suffering, the last thing as a Calvinist, I want to go up to them and put my, put my arm around a person and say, you know, God ordained this for you, for your, for your good. So just, you know, bear up under it because it's God's sovereign plan. Now that's not what I would say pastorally in that situation, but what's going through my mind is, okay, we know the, what you're going through something that's painful right now. Uh We know the who. God. God is with you. God is there for you. God is good. What we don't know is the why. Because Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. There, we, even at the end of Job, God doesn't tell him why he had to suffer, just that he did. And so this may sound like a cop-out, but I don't know if that, I don't know if we know, I mean, we can, we can always go back to, you know, it's for the greater good or for God's glory, you know, some people don't like that answer because it sounds like a cop-out. Oh, you're just saying it's for God's glory. Well, that's that really helps me out a lot when I'm going through a painful situation. But what I would say is that, you know, Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, who those who've been called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. How we define good may be up for debate depending on our definition versus God's definition, but we know he's working it out. What I would tell people is we may not never know what we may not know why we're suffering or why these things have had to happen, but we do know that God is good, God is there, and God will get you through those things. Okay, it's t- that's a tough question. Bible, I don't know if the Bible gives gives a full didactic, clear answer. Yeah, yeah, I think I appreciate your pastoral point too. That's something that Tim Keller also makes a, a point of. That uh, in that moment, somebody's more likely to respond to you know a hug and somebody saying, "Look, yeah. you know, I don't understand it either, but like I know God cares about you and he's he's here going through this. You know, yeah. he hasn't abandoned you and he's he's right here. So let, let me give you an example of, of hyper Calvinism gone bad in a situation like that. So in my my former church, there was an adult Sunday school class where a young couple had just had a miscarriage and they were struggling 
in that class and they brought it up as a prayer request. And, and there was a Calvinist in the class. Our church wasn't reformed, but there was a Calvinist in the class who basically looked at them coldly and said, well, you know, you don't know if your baby's in hell or in heaven. It depends on if he was elect or if he was reprobate. That's, that's what he said to them in that moment when they're mm. sharing their prayer request about it. And I'm like, goodness sakes, that, that is like the worst thing you can do at a moment like that. There's sometimes Calvinists need to keep their theology to themselves during times of suffering and look at what's more of the pastoral good in the moment. And then later on, maybe work out some theology. But right then, they don't need to understand the doctrine of election and reprobation and the salvation of infants. They need to hear, <laughs> they need to hear hope. So anyway. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for uh, clarifying this and, and bearing with my, my questions here. I think that's— Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think that's going to be enough for now— uh, we'll we'll have okay. to come back and delve deeper into some of these other issues that are related to this. But uh, thanks for sharing these answers. You're more than welcome. I've had a good time, and I appreciate it. Well, that's it for this interview. We'll come back next week for part two, where we'll get a little bit more into this subject and get this third perspective really explained. If you are interested in dialoguing on this episode, I encourage you to come on to restitutio.org and find episode 307, Foreknowledge and Free Will, Part 5, Sean Cole Introducing Calvinism, and uh, leave your comment there. Uh, Also, I have a number of links in the show notes for this episode to Dr. Cole's podcast, his book, his personal page as well, seancole.net. Sean, of course, spelled correctly, S-E-A-N, Cole, C-O-L-E, dot net. And so you could follow up with him there. I do find myself personally disagreeing with Dr. Cole on this particular subject, but I can't help but appreciate his demeanor and his godly way of carrying himself in this conversation. So I I certainly appreciate that. Also, recently I put out a post on restitutio.org. It's not a podcast, just a post about the new year and summarizing a number of the different series and episodes and interviews we had in 2019. So take a look at that if you haven't already. Uh, All in all, Restitutio had 56 podcasts in 2019, totaling to over 74,000, almost 75,000 unique downloads, which uh, is pretty big for us. That's an increase of 30% over 2018. So I just wanted to thank all of you listeners out there who have contributed, shared, commented, downloaded, and helped out in some way. I'm looking forward to an exciting 2020. We've got this series that we're in right now. We've got one more episode in this. And then I've got some other interviews that I've already recorded on the gifts of the Spirit with Dr. Sam Storms of Oklahoma, as well as two interviews on dispensationalism, another major theological system by John Truitt of Kentucky. So Uh, Stay tuned for that, and I've got some other plans beyond that as well. But rest assured, I have no plans of slowing down in 2020. I'm I'm happy to do this, and you know it's really great to see the impact that it has. I get a number of emails in, just private emails from people who discover the show or discover some YouTube videos, and it makes a difference in their lives. So, thanks all of you for your support. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.